Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. Welcome, Dr. Biswas. We're really excited to have you here today. Thank you very much. Well, we were lucky enough to speak on a great panel related to white collar crime, and I'm excited for our audience today to hear about your focus areas of practice, to hear a little bit about forensic psychiatry and how mental illness and criminal behavior intersect with both people from basically all different walks of life. Um, I thought I'd start out by giving our listeners and our, our watchers a little bit of your background. And I'm going to read it because it's incredibly impressive and I'll inevitably mess up one of the credentials. Uh, Dr. Biswas is an instructor in psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and a board certified adult and forensic psychiatrist. She is the director of psychiatry law and psychiatry program uh, at, I'm sorry, Psychiatry Law and Society Program, that's a mouthful, at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, and the co-director of the Harvard Mass General Brigham Forensic Psychiatry Fellowship. She's a clinician and a researcher on psycho-legal issues, acute psychiatric care, and physician well-being, and she was awarded the Massachusetts Psychiatric Society Award for Outstanding Psychiatrist in Early Career in 2023 for her contributions to these areas. Her research is focused on improving mental health laws so they can better serve patients and their families and caregivers. What an important area to be focused on these days. I agree, Arden. It's just, you know, this the situation is overwhelming. And at this time, I really hope we can do some education around, you know, what is mental illness? How do we help people with it? How do we help ourselves? I think that's great. Well, let's start out by just the basics. You know, talk to me about what forensic psychiatry actually is, what the role is, why it's important for folks to know about. Sure, and absolutely. That's a that's a great question. It sounds sort of basic, but I don't think a lot of people know what forensic psychiatry is. And it's actually different from forensic psychology, though there are a lot of overlaps. I will speak to forensic psychiatry because my training is in psychiatry and the law. So first of all, just the basic overlay, uh, it's a subspecialty of psychiatric medicine where, uh, where it intersects with the law. And so what is psychiatry? So psychiatrists uh, go through medical school. They end up training in a residency program at a hospital training in the subspecialty of psychiatry, which is uh, the, the medicine of mood, behavior, and disorders of mood and behavior. And so after you do a psychiatric training, you can also do a subspecialty training in what we call forensics or psychiatry and the law. That field began because there were so, there were so many intersections around people with mental illness and their interactions with the law. Because in the law, you require actus reus, which is the act itself, 
in criminal law and mens rea, which is the intention, the mens rea piece became something that the courts really needed expertise around to help understand in order to be able to, to sentence, to convict, to come up with verdicts they require mens rea. And so psychiatrists and, and neurologists often get involved in that space. How do I think about forensic psychiatry? I actually take it a step further. I think about it as consultation to social organizations around mental health expertise. And so what ends up happening is we not only liaison with uh, the legal system, but we liaison with courts, correctional systems, the legislative system, um, organizations that require uh, evaluations of an individual, uh, colleges, schools, lots of social institutions require some type of consultation around what's actually going on with an individual that they're trying to help. And so that is where I think forensic psychiatry is going beyond just working on uh, criminal law. So interesting. Um, there are so many questions that I have, but I'm going to start off with one that I think many of our listeners might relate to, which is, you know, we hear about cases, all sorts of criminal cases, and you hear about, you know, the various plea deals that people try to work out due to questions of mm -hmm. mental capacity. And I'm thinking specifically in the corporate setting, can you explain or can you give us your view on how the complexity of, of mental illness can lead or impact, you know, criminal behavior in corporate settings? And I'm thinking about some of the CEOs and some of the finance companies that have had so many struggles recently with people making what seem to be very clearly unethical decisions and how mental illness may play into that or not play into it. Right. And so we think a lot about criminal behavior, wherever it lands, you know, I think there's one category of, of violent behavior, which is maybe more my area of expertise, but also other types of behavior that are criminal, that hurt others um, in different ways, uh, basically lands around impaired judgment and um, oftentimes also impulsivity. So I, I would say that those two things really do end up coming in, playing a role when mental illness is also involved. Um, you know, ways I think about how people in the corporate setting are also, you know, vulnerable to these issues is that, you know, we see a lot of uh, people with mental illness also have a history of trauma. Right. And so trauma early in life, throughout life, whether it's in the corporate culture, but early in childhood as well, um, you know, result in maladaptive coping skills and maladaptive behaviors. And so there's just this complex interplay between all of these things that results in criminal behavior. And it, it, it often ends up that a forensic psychiatrist gets involved to suss out all of the various aspects that may lead to the propensity to the behavior that happened in that individual's life. So often, um, you know, big pieces that uh, play a role in what I see when I do these evaluations is substance use and um, traumatic brain injury and mood disorders. So those often play a big role, all three of them, 
or or one or two of them can can play a big role in impulsive behaviors and impaired judgment and so how do we see see that play out uh trauma so if you are you have a history of very difficult circumstances and you know trauma now is defined in so many different ways and we're really thinking about trauma from a micro to a macro level but really let's talk about serious types of abuse sexual emotional physical um and uh neglect and divorce and conflict and and aspects like that that play a huge role in people's lives that lead to maladaptive coping skills in order to get to the place that they are in life um result in suppressing a lot of um just negative feelings that people don't want to deal with okay so so there's the trauma piece that can lead to impaired judgment but then also on top of that there is the self medication of pressure and trauma in people's lives that can also lead to impaired judgment impulsivity and and, and bad decision making um so there's the substance use piece and the other piece that we don't talk about a lot but we see a lot in mood disorders is traumatic brain injury um a lot of times mm-hmm. people with mental illness and mood disorders will end up in precarious vulnerable situations that do end up leading to traumatic brain injury and traumatic brain injury can look invisible to the outside world but yes. plays a huge role in how people uh live their lives and make decisions and i've often seen a very interconnected um um like those are comorbidities i think that result in violent behavior impulsive behavior and bad decisions It's really interesting that you mentioned that. Um my brother struggled had actually a a TBI due to a ski accident and to your point it was yeah. invisible to most people. If you met him, you wouldn't have known it. Um what they claim in terms of the workup he got that it impacted was his impulsivity, which already was you know, he already had sort of uh low impulsive controls or however you say it. He had, he was not he was a very impulsive person and he had a predisposition towards substance use, but this TBI they claim kind of lowered his inhibitions even further um and we saw that play out over the course of his treatment i guess one question might be because what's interesting is well we had all access to this clinical information and we reviewed it with a psychiatrist and we were able to put him into a program that hopefully addressed some of these issues you know to the average person i'm thinking about on a jury he appeared completely functional. If anything, he looked like a child that grew up in a wealthy family that was acting out, bratty, whatever, entitled, whatever term you want to use. So, and maybe you can't answer this, maybe it's an impossible question, but how do you think about, you know, when you think about going in and testifying on behalf of folks that have experienced this, you know, is there a line of culpability? How do you think about whether this person is going to be bettered mm-hmm. by intensive treatment um versus you know sort of somebody where the the line is around what they need to be held accountable for Oh my gosh that is such a complex question but also so important and exactly what I do what my colleagues do what we do in the clinical setting as well I mean cuz ultimately what you're saying is is this treatable is the person accountable but also do we need to look at all the factors that are playing into it so that we can treat it so it doesn't happen again or this person is is helped in some way right so we reduce the recidivism or kind of the 
the constant nature of moving through the psychiatric system and the criminal justice system. And so such a good question. And I think in a lot of ways, that's what the structured clinical interview does. We look at all of those components when we're doing that evaluation to say like, what made up this person's mind in its current state that resulted in the behaviors that we're seeing. Now, our job as the forensic psychiatrist is not to make the ultimate decision of accountability, right? And our job is ultimately to give a clinical opinion of what caused the behavior mm -hmm. from what we know uh, clinically in that, in that uh, evaluate interaction and um, how can we help that situation? So oftentimes my recommendations never include, and by the way, he should go to jail for seven years or she should go to jail for seven years. My, my recommendations are always like, here's the treatment that's going to be necessary to address the trauma, the substance use, the TBI, the um, mood disorder, and uh, whatever else is kind of resulting to it, in it. So. So really uh, how I think about this is I get a social history, a psychiatric history, a medical history, a trauma history, a legal history, a violence history, um, a, you know, a history of, of um, um, work history as well. And I kind of look at all of those different components and how they interplay to make the person who she or he is. And then I talk about what was disordered in in that situation, in, in the clinical opinion, and then give recommendations of how we can target it. So this is why figuring out trauma is so important or substance use is so important because ultimately, while the person may still be accountable, when you describe the person's story, it humanizes the individual sure. into this is this is who this person was and this is what kind of landed this person here. How do we help them so it doesn't happen again? How do we help them so that this is as rehab rehabilitative as it is punitive? You know, like at the end of the day, we're all human and we come from different backgrounds and how do, how do we uh, create moments of recovery in that space uh, after the evaluation is done? Um, and I, I don't know if that answers your question, but it does, I think it does help with accountability as well when you humanize that individual and make treatment recommendations. It absolutely does. And I think it gives people a broader picture. I mean, I think one of the things we see in our practice is so much concern, you know, because of school shootings and violence that just exists in our country, when people have a mental illness, I think there's a, you know, a, a bit of a misperception that that necessarily means that the person is going to be vulnerable to acting out at any moment. And I think giving context around what led somebody into the decision making gives you know, whether it's the jurors there, whether it's their family, whether it's just the general public, an understanding of mm -hmm. the context, the contextual circumstances that led to the behavior. So it's not a, at any moment, this person could come out and do X, Y, Z. It's contextualized based on that person's background. Uh, I think one other question I have is, do you, and I'm curious if, you know, not just you, but your colleagues, you know, are there certain diagnoses or historical factors that in your mind make a case more hopeful that the treatment will be impactful. And I ask this because we we deal with folks with a range of disorders from thought disorders to mood disorders. Some are more treatable by medication. Some require 
more adherence to a pretty regimented therapeutic program and lack of right. insight into diagnosis for a lot of clients is an right. issue. So I'm, I'm curious how that, um, it maybe doesn't impact your recommendations or your testimony just as a psychiatrist, you sort of look at some cases and think, wow, even if they get the treatment, this is gonna be a hard protocol for this particular person to adhere to based on either their history and or their diagnosis. Oh, it is. Oh, that's such a good question and so important. And it is case by case because it really depends on the individual and how they're gaining insight. I, I do think one of the major um, blocks to intervention is lack of insight. Um, if you can't see it yourself, nobody can see it for you, <laughs> right? So, so nobody can can see it for you and give treatment recommendations and have you voluntarily gain benefit from those interventions if you don't see it yourself. And that lack of insight, you know, I, in my work, I've, I've worked with a lot of people with serious mental illness. And so I see it uh, in psychotic illness and manic illness uh, more often, but we certainly also can see it in very intransigent or refractory personality disorders where mm -hmm. there is so much suppressed and so much in denial um, of, in someone's history their own psychiatric history or medical history or their just life history, that it's very hard for them to access what happened because it's so painful. And this is why trauma plays a big role also in insight. And, and, and what happens is if that trauma starts to bubble up, people will use um, in this particular population, often they'll self-medicate and use maladaptive coping skills. And so substance use, we know um, when used to self-medicate and suppress really difficult feelings um, can result in a whole host of very serious, irrational, unpredictable, impulsive behaviors, right? So we know like anyone who is overusing alcohol, overusing cocaine, overusing mm. stimulants, overusing opiates um, can really have bad repercussions and result in interactions with the law. So this is what it's just sort of, it can be a self-fulfilling prophecy and it can be a downward spiral depending on that person and their ability to have insight into like what's actually going on. Because as soon as you develop some insight, you can engage in the treatment, right? Like, um, and, and that is important. So I often find in mood disorders or psychotic disorders, if you can get people on the right treatment and it's working for them, that, uh, impaired insights start state and then they're more engaged. Um, the problem is what, ha you know, that engagement and that impaired insight can wax and wane over time. And then you sure. end up kind of with these future cycles of lack of awareness. But, um, but I do find in mood, dis mood disorders are treatable. Psychotic disorders are treatable. That's what I want to give hope around. Traumatic brain injuries are treatable. We see a lot of post-concussive syndromes that like over time improve slowly, unfortunately, but they do improve. And with the right types of interventions and rest and recovery and treatment, people can improve from post-concussive syndromes and, and, and complete uh, and completely um, regain their potential. Uh, the other thing is I've also seen that these concussive syndromes can uh, go hand in hand with mood disorders. It ends up resulting in depression and, and PTSD from where however the head injury occurred. And so 
treating the mood disorder along with the concussive disorder can also be really helpful um, to, to recognize that all of those processes are happening at the same time can be really valuable to treatment and, and um, seeing future improvement. I think it's great. I love to hear the message of hope. And I often say to families who are so devastated that their loved one has a substance use disorder, as an example, you know, one benefit is if you're able to get them into the right treatment and they're able to remain abstinent, you are going to get back the person you remembered. It may not be exactly with the same behaviors as they had as a child, but you can see these traumatic turnarounds. And, and, and really, it's just trying to use whatever, in my opinion, whatever motivators there are. I was going to use the word leverage, but it sounds very punitive. Um, but sometimes, honestly, the yes. criminal justice system can be the sign or it can be the um, the motivator for somebody who's not been able to get clean or engage in therapy in a regular right. basis. Sometimes knowing right. that there are pending charges and this might be a way to um, appease the court and avoid a more lengthy jail term or or have um, treatment be part of your aftercare plan or however it's positioned um, sometimes that is the motivator folks need that rock bottom moment of kind of ending up in the penal system i have often seen those are these moments where people finally have a moment and space to rest and, and actually just not have these outside forces cause pressure where they can reflect. And um, that reflection can be really helpful in engaging in treatment and regaining insight and actually just like looking at your life. Uh, so you bring up a great point around that. Um, not that it's, a, nobody wants to get to that point and nobody wants to be there, but, but if it does happen, um, if we can turn that experience into something positive and, and really help people gain insight. I've just seen a lot of turnarounds in that space. Totally agree. We have a, a client who actually has had uh, a loved one who's been incarcerated before, and that's the one time um, that they've been able to get um, her to agree to medication when she's incarcerated. And that gets her clearer headed in terms of her thinking, which allows her to engage in clinical treatment. And it doesn't always last, but it often can be, it's, I never thought I would see this, but oftentimes when she's in jail, it's the best time for this family because they feel like they know she's safe. She's, she's getting some clinical treatment and she's stable. Yes. And, and that is the sad, I, I have seen that too a lot where families are getting some respite and ability to recover from not being able to get their loved ones the treatment that they need and deserve and should have. And I think it's in those moments where they can kind of, uh, kind of coalesce, coalesce resources and figure out the best way to move forward. It's like a pause in a way to be like, all right, we're rock bottom. We're in a pause and maybe we can regroup and, and figure out a new direction and, it's, an, it's unfortunate that it has to land there. Can't there be a better way than landing in the criminal justice system? But I have seen that that is sometimes the space where things really turn around. Absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about the differences you see either in the incidence of mental illness or the manifestation in forensic psychiatry between folks from different socioeconomic groups. So either higher net worth individuals versus folks who come from more impoverished situations. You know, is there a way that that plays out and that I can predict my, how it might play out, but I'm curious how you've seen it play out either in the types of crimes that are committed or the way 
um, families are able to access resources or incidence rates of particular diagnoses? I think this is where just sort of my biological training and background in mental illness comes into play. And what I really think, whether you're high net worth or low net worth, uh, biological mental illness knows no bounds and it, it doesn't have kind of a financial boundary. So I certainly see biological serious mental illness kind of, you know, not see financial boundaries as in any way. So, I mean, low net worth or high net worth, uh, you're still vulnerable to mental illness. And I think that that's an important thing to recognize. There is a lot of literature though that, you know, people in cycles of poverty and in social disorganized situations in early childhood certainly uh, increase the propensity for having mental illness, substance use disorders and TBI because of just there isn't that buffer of good healthcare systems and good school systems and good nutrition and all of those things. But that doesn't mean that people of high net worth don't end up in very socially disorganized and high pressured settings in high conflict settings in abusive and neglectful settings as well. And so I've certainly seen it play out in across the population. Uh, but what I do see that in, sometimes in the criminal justice system, people of high net worth do end up falling through the cracks because maybe you know, in trying to get treatment, the families are using money to figure that out. And people in impoverished situations sometimes have that safety net of being indigent and getting public uh, um, defense and having those things in place earlier. So, so sometimes I do see the opposite occurring um, yeah. in terms of people getting the help that they need, but ultimately, um, serious mental illness and traumatic brain injury doesn't, you know, doesn't nod to net worth. And I think we need to think about each case individually and really make sure we do a thorough evaluation, no matter who that individual is, for getting the right treatment interventions in place. I think it's I think it's a great point and I think you know I think I shared with you when I met you that I ran a home for foster care kids who were you know largely yes. 15 to 22 year old men in the Medicaid system so extreme yes. poverty abuse and neglect criminal behavior multiple um, comorbidities in terms of substance use and mental illness um, and you know I learned very quickly how we were going to have to interact with the court system in order to advocate appropriately to keep them in less right. what my goal was to keep them in the group home that I ran, you know, even if they violated probation with something as simple as testing positive for marijuana. Fast forward 10 years and my brother who comes from a high net worth family who has right. gone to private school and had all the advantages. I used very much the same skill set I used with the foster care kids and I learned it from being in that system. You know, I remember talking to his attorney and saying, well, we can't send him back to the eighth rehab. Now we have to look at a brain injury program because the court will look at that as something different than what he's been to previously. And again, all of that and even how we detailed his timeline and the uh, way he was going to be monitored, it was all based on my experience with a very different population. I'm, I'm not sure I, had I not worked with these foster care kids, if I would have known that strategy. And I'm not even sure our attorney would have known it, to be honest, because I think, you know, he's concerned with the law 
but I'm not sure, you know, he asked me, can you go find the right program? And I used some connections that I had professionally to be able to navigate that. But again, had I not had that model, I'm just not sure we would have seen the outcome, which was that he was able to avoid a five to eight year prison sentence in California. That's what he, my brother was, um, you know, that was, that was what was sort of out on the table. So, uh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'm thinking, you know, I love to hear stories and I'm thinking one way we could end the podcast today is by you telling either a story or two about ways that you think your testimony has helped somebody get the care that they need. Sure. Um, it happens all the time um, where when you get on the stand as a psychiatrist and describe the person's history and talk about who they are and talk about their struggles and say, look, these are the interventions this person needs in order to overcome what just happened. Um, I've, I've seen the courts take compassionate stances on that over and over again. Um, and I think that this is, we as a society are evolving in that way. We're moving towards a higher consciousness of understanding that being violent is not a normal way to be as a human being, right? Like it's being caused by something. And what is that something? And can we intervene there to um, make this rehabilitative as much as anything else when someone is involved in the criminal justice system. And so I can think of a case recently this spring where this this was unfortunately a, a murder charge and this individual um, had a long history of abuse, but when and and at a very early age started using substances because he, his family was using substances he was um, exposed to that at a very early age. And as we know, if you're using substances like cocaine and opiates at a very early age, it changes the brain very seriously and can result in um, higher levels of mental illness later in life. And this individual, uh, when clean and sober, was, you know, a true model citizen was working at, in a very high tech job as an engineer, um, a really brilliant, smart person. Uh, in this individual's spare time, he was creating a homeless clinic and giving food and resources to people with substance use disorders because he had such compassion for those individuals uh, with addiction because he understood it so well. But then when he would fall into his own binge, it would be incredibly difficult to get out. And so this individual ended up very sick in a homeless encampment and um, when on a cocaine binge, uh, became very paranoid, very paranoid and in self, you know, um, finding things a threat during that period of time ended up in a tussle that resulted in the other person dying. And, um, you know, my role was to really spend time with this individual and understand what happened and, and talk to him over time and really understand his, his own understanding of addiction, how painful the struggle is, how he wanted to just die, which is why he ended up in the homeless encampment, because he just couldn't figure out a way to get out of his circumstance and out of his addiction problems. And being able to explain that to the court and ex being able to explain what a cocaine binge looks like over time and how that changes the brain and how you do have paranoia and hallucinations and believe everything is threatening and start to have these delusions that you may act out in those ways. And so um, 
this individual uh, ended up with a much lesser sentence because of that that testimony. And so I do see it, but I I don't see it as I'm speaking to that to reduce the sentence. But what I am seeing is like, we need for this individual to get the addiction treatment this person needs so that they can be the real beautiful human being that they are when they're sober. Right. And and to be able to explain that to the court and how the brain changes on drugs. Absolutely. And that, and we're also in that process, you're also protecting the public and making sure that nobody else's life is hurt. So that I think that's beautiful. I think it's a great way to end. Thank you so much, Dr. Biswas, for t- coming on Beyond the Balance Sheet today. Thank you to all our listeners and the folks that are watching. Please tune into another episode. And if you're so inclined, please go on your podcast platform of choice and give us a great review. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.